it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, October 11th, 2022. My name is Guy Benson, and this is The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening. Tuning in every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, then around the clock on demand for free every day on our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com, one-stop shop for everything. That's our online home, GuyBensonShow.com. I'm the political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor over on the TV side. I'll be on special report tonight, right around 6.40, 6.45 p.m. Eastern. The Brett Bayer panel on Fox News Channel talking about news and politics of the day. Hope to see you there. You can tune in live or set your DVRs. On the radio side, we are loaded up. Big lineup today starting later this hour with Congressman Lee Zeldin, Republican of New York, who is running for governor in the Empire State. He's the Republican nominee. Disturbing episode right outside his home over the weekend. We talked about it yesterday. Gunfire in his neighborhood. Shots fired very close to where his young girls were doing their homework. Crime has been a central issue in his campaign against Kathy Hochul, the Democratic governor. We will talk to him about all of that coming up. In our next hour, Leslie Marshall one of our Democratic left-leaning colleagues here at Fox. She'll be here talking about California, plus the midterms. Looking forward to that with Leslie. Also in our middle hour, Ted Budd, Republican congressman in North Carolina and the GOP pick for Senate in that Tar Heel state. He will be here talking about his very close race. He's ahead by a hair, just had his first big debate against his Democratic opponent. We will ask him all about that coming up. That is right after 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And then Byron York here in studio to kick off our final happy hour around 5.05 Eastern. Byron York talking about some really breathtaking comments from the vice president of the United States, especially picking up on what we opened the show yesterday with, her trip down to Texas where she went to a fundraiser, talked about everything except the border and the border crisis as the borders are technically at least, in this administration. She won't discuss it. She doesn't want to. But she was sort of forced to. It was thrust upon her as an issue by Seth Meyers, of all people, on a late-night talk show that she was on last night. He asked it in a sympathetic way, asking her basically to attack Republicans, which she did in an incredibly self-unaware way. I mean, even for her, we will get Byron's reaction and analysis coming up. We begin, however, in Ohio, where last night there was a major debate in that Senate contest between J.D. Vance, the Republican, and his Democratic opponent, Tim Ryan. Ryan is a sitting congressman. Vance is an author. And it is, I would say, if you look at the polling, a little close for what the Republicans would be hoping to see. 
There was a poll out this week that has Mike DeWine, the Republican governor of Ohio, leading comfortably in his reelection bid, up 20 plus points in that race, just a blowout. But in the polling average, J.D. Vance, the Republican Senate nominee, is only ahead of Congressman Ryan by a point or two. It's close. And so these two had a very, I would say, at times heated clash on the debate stage last night. I watched a lot of it. I saw some partisans on each side, you know, right wing partisans, left wing partisans declaring a clear, overwhelming victory for their side. Like, oh, J.D. Vance destroyed Tim Ryan or Tim Ryan just decimated and wiped the floor with J.D. Vance. That's not what I saw. I saw a pretty even debate that I would actually give the slight edge to Vance, especially as a first time candidate, not a lifelong politician like Tim Ryan. I think Vance probably got the better of the exchange overall, but not by a lot. Each man had his moments. Hilariously, they were dressed exactly the same. Like every single thing about their outfit was like identical. So that was kind of funny. But I want you to hear part of what happened last night because I mentioned Ted Budd will be on the show in the next hour in North Carolina. The Republicans cannot lose that race and still win the Senate. It's that simple. If the Republicans lose the North Carolina race, which he's leading in, they should win, quote unquote. But if they can't, the Senate will be in Democratic hands again. The same applies to Ohio. The stakes are high. I know we have listeners all over the state of Ohio. J.D. Vance might not be everyone's cup of tea. They may not be thrilled. Regardless, Tim Ryan would be a rubber stamp for Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer in the Senate, just as he has been consistently a rubber stamp for Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi in the House. We played you the soundbite recently. Tim Ryan was at an event with Chuck Schumer in the room, and he shouted him out. He said, I've got to suck up to my future boss, Chuck Schumer. That's how he views it. The Democratic leadership, they're his boss, not the people of Ohio. And that was a point that I think J.D. Vance was able to drive home last night. So there was one point that I enjoyed. This is a very short clip, but Tim Ryan had clearly practiced this one, a line that he wanted to use against Vance. And Vance just sort of deadpans in the background. It's a well-rehearsed line, Tim. Cut nine. Ohio needs an ass kicker, not an ass kisser. Okay, thank you, candidates. Another well-rehearsed line. Obviously, they wrote that one down. They poll tested that one. It was so obvious. I mean, Tim Ryan, he's not very subtle. He's just like he oozes politician, which is fair. He's been a politician for basically his whole adult life. This is what he does for a living. They write down pithy little lines and then he delivers it. And Vance, who's an outsider, never run for anything, just called it for what it was. It's a nice rehearsed line there. Now, that was, though, part of what Tim Ryan was trying to say. The ass kisser, quote unquote, in this situation is supposedly Vance, who will just never stand up to his party or to Trump or whatever. Whereas Tim Ryan, he's Mr. Moderate Independent. Right. He stands up to his party. He's not just a rubber stamp. He said he'd be a real pain in the rear end for Chuck Schumer, his boss, quote unquote, if he gets elected to the Senate. And of course, it's nonsense. It makes sense to say that publicly because Ohio is a state that has gotten redder and redder. Donald Trump won it by eight points in 2020. And by the way, he was only up by one in the polling average 
on Election Day. Supposed to be a squeaker. He won by eight. But it's getting more conservative, so Tim Ryan has to tell the people of Ohio, oh, no, I'm I'm not like the other Democrats. No, not me. I'm different. I stand up to my party. The problem is his record, which J.D. Vance called him on. Listen to cut five. We need leaders who have courage to take on their own party. And I've proven that. And he was called an ass kisser by the former president. The question is the biggest threat to democracy. Sure. If you would like to answer that first and then you can respond to some of his accusations. So I I will answer the question, Colleen, because I think it's important for the voters for us to actually answer the questions. But first of all, I'm not going to take lectures on dignity and self-respect from a guy caught on video kissing up to Chuck Schumer and begging him for a promotion to his next job. That's the kind of guy that Tim Ryan is. Now, he just said, it's so funny, we're getting close to Halloween, and Tim Ryan is put on a costume where he pretends to be a reasonable moderate. But in fact, he, he said he stands up to his own party. The last two Congresses, Tim, you voted for Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden 100%. You consistently toe the party line on every single issue. I wish that you were the reasonable moderate. You said you were, because then Youngstown may not lost 50,000 manufacturing jobs during your, during your 20 years. I wish you were the reasonable moderate. You said you were, but you're not. You're wearing a Halloween costume of moderate while you vote 100% of the time with the party, that's not a made-up attack line. That is real. 538 has a Biden score for members of Congress, the percent of time, percentage of the time that you vote any member of Congress for the Biden agenda for Joe Biden's program. And Tim Ryan of Ohio, Mr. Moderate Independent, has voted 100% of the time, 100 with Joe Biden, not even a calculated dissent or two just to put on a show back home. Nope. Nancy Pelosi tells him what to do. She gets her marching orders from Ron Klein or whoever at the White House. And Tim Ryan salutes and does exactly what he's told. And that's exactly what he would do in the Senate as well. I think this is such a crucial thing to just sort of pull the mask off of Ryan and this whole sort of folksly, folksy, working man, moderate thing, they need to do a lot more of that in the Vance campaign. And in fact, they're out with a new ad that goes precisely to this issue. I think it's very well done. A tale of two Tims, TV Tim versus DC Tim. Here's the J.D. Vance ad highlighting this point even further in Cut 10. A tale of two Tims, TV Tim Ryan pretends he's with you. I don't answer to any political party. But D.C. Tim Ryan votes with Biden Pelosi 100%. You've said that you don't like Nancy Pelosi. You love Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, I I do love her. D.C. Tim's been in Washington 20 years, supporting amnesty and opposing the border wall that would slow down illegals and drugs flooding Ohio. I'm J.D. Vance, and I approve this message because TV Tim is fake. But D.C. Tim is bad for Ohio. Yeah, TV Tim is the guy trying to get elected try to get himself elected statewide in Ohio. That's TV Tim. D.C. Tim is the guy who actually votes along with his party in a knee-jerk, reflexive way every single time while claiming that he's very independent. Just kind of embarrassing. You'd think he would fake it a little bit better. I guess uh, he can't. His loyalty to Pelosi and Biden is just too strong. Now, Tim Ryan, of course, is attacking J.D. Vance on abortion. All the Democrats are trying to do this. And it seems like the Republicans are finally doing what I have been urging them to do all along, which is to acknowledge their own position, explain it, and 
debunk some of the lies being told about them, but then pivot and go on the attack because even Mr. Moderate, Tim Ryan, voted for Nancy Pelosi's barbaric, draconian, inhumane abortion bill. Legal abortion for all nine months. That's exactly what J.D. Vance did in cut six at the debate last night. I am pro-life. I've always been pro-life. And I, I grew up in a poor family and a poor community. I saw a lot of young women have abortions when I was growing up. And one of the things that always struck me is it felt like a lot of those young women didn't have options. They felt like they didn't have the health care that they needed. we got to fix that. They felt like it would have ruined to have a baby so early. It would have ruined their career, their personal lives. We've got to fix that sense, too. Uh, I I recognize, of course, that a lot of people are pro-choice, that they have a different view on this issue than I did. I was raised by a woman, the woman who saved my life, my mamaw, uh, was a woman, an old-school Democrat, who believed that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. That's not Congressman Ryan's view. He says that he wants to codify Roe. He voted for a piece of legislation that would have overturned Roe and required abortion on demand at 40 weeks for fully elective reasons. He also voted for a piece of legislation that would have prevented doctors from providing medical care to babies who survived botched abortions. And so Tim Ryan, not wanting to talk about his own extremism on this, Brett Baer a few months ago kept pressing him for a single limitation, many of which are very popular across the country and in Ohio. Tim Ryan would not agree to a single limitation on abortion because he wants to bring in all that sweet money from the left wing. And that's now like a requirement. Just uh, it's like the, the cost of entry into Democratic national politics is to be an absolute fanatic pro-abortion person. Meanwhile, he's been distorting Vance's view on abortion. And again, Vance went back on offense after explaining his own position in cut seven. I absolutely think the 10-year-old girl, the case that we've, of course, heard a lot about, an incredibly tragic situation. I mean, look, I've got a 9-year-old baby girl at home. I cannot imagine what's that, what that's like for the girl, for her family. God forbid something that, like that would happen. I have said repeatedly on the record that I think that that girl should be able to get an abortion if she and her family so choose to do so. But let's talk about that case. Because why was a 10-year-old girl raped in our community, raped in our state in the first place? The thing the media and Congress and Ryan, they talk about this all the time. The thing they never mentioned is that poor girl was raped by an illegal alien, somebody that should have never been in this state in the first place. You voted so many times against border wall funding, so many times for amnesty, Tim. If you had done your job, she would have never been raped in the first place. Do your job on border security. Don't lecture me about opinions I don't actually have. Oof. And on the border, just like Mark Kelly got flattened by Blake Masters the other night on one border answer in particular, going after an actual record in Washington, D.C., here was Vance on border security and immigration, cut eight. Tim Ryan has done nothing to stop the flow of fentanyl. He talks about wanting to support a stronger border. He talks about wanting to be bipartisan and get things done. Well, Tim, you've been in Congress for 20 years, and the border problem has got worse and worse and worse. I don't care about what you want to do, Tim. I care about what have you done? What have you actually done to reduce the flow of fentanyl so that people like my family are not as affected by this terrible addiction crisis? That's the thing I really, really worry about here is that, look, we all agree, okay, we want a strong border. We want to make sure El Chapo does get it. Of course we believe those things. Tim Ryan has had 20 years to get something done, and he just hasn't done it. Yep. 20-year career politician trying to pretend that he's a moderate independent 
the record, the voting record, tells a very different story. And all the aspirations with these poll-tested slogans back home to make it seem like he's in the middle mean nothing compared to what he's actually done year after year after year. Big debate in Ohio last night. Big election in Ohio November the 8th. The Guy Benson Show continues next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. We were just talking about the Ohio Senate race out in the Buckeye State. Tight one. Another race much farther west in Washington state, the polls show a bit more of a comfortable edge with the Democrat in that contest leading the incumbent Patty Murray, part of Democratic leadership in the Senate. But at least in some of these surveys, she's only up by mid single digits. In fact, I saw a poll also today out of Colorado that has the Democrat Michael Bennett up in the mid to high single digits, not exactly blowing it out, but also, you know, ahead. Patty Murray is getting hit in Washington state by her very capable Republican opponent, Tiffany Smiley, who's a very compelling person with a great story. First time candidate, then pretty good at raising money. She's been very disciplined in terms of her messaging. We've had her here on the show. Crime, 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 inflation, 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 education. These are the focuses of Tiffany Smiley. Patty Murray was on CNN just recently saying, knowing everything that she knows, she wouldn't do anything differently about closing schools and all of that during the pandemic. So it's like, oh, well, we only knew what we knew at the time and making all these excuses. Recently, Senator Murray did a campaign event in Seattle, sort of a photo op. And our friend Jason Rance, who was on the show yesterday, KTTH, he was out there. And he wrote about this. He sent it to me earlier today. She was pretending, he writes, that the city's all safe and thriving in Seattle. While she was doing the photo op, there was a theft reported just a few blocks away. And based on Jason's reporting, on the day of that photo op for Senator Patty Murray in Seattle, in that neighborhood alone, there were 11 emergency calls placed to authorities. Seattle is not safe and thriving. Patty Murray is living in this fantasy land where she's trying to pretend that's the case. Tiffany Smiley's campaigning on reality. We'll see if the voters in Washington state are interested in reality. Maybe, maybe not. The Guy Benson Show continues. Lee Zeldin of New York joins us straight ahead. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. We're back. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. And if you're listening on the live broadcast very appropriate bumper music here as we come in a little billy joel as we get ready to chat with a congressman from long island new york 
where the piano man is from, of course, at least that overall neck of the woods. It's Lee Zeldin, Republican congressman from the Empire State. He's the GOP nominee for governor up there. And, Congressman, it's good to have you here. You know, I always loved about Billy Joel that no matter how big he got, how global he got, he was always writing those songs about where he came from on Long Island. I was always asked in politics, uh, you know, about who you'd look up to. And people are always thinking about, you know, like other people who are in politics. I think it's important to emulate a guy like Billy Joel. You never forget where you come from. Yeah, and the guy has been selling out Madison Square Garden for years. I have gone to see him probably close to half a dozen times, maybe five times at this point, but never at the Garden. I feel like I need to fix that. It's like he's the artist in residence at Madison Square Garden. It would be a mistake as a huge Billy Joel fan not to see him there in the heart of it all. That's how it feels at least. You know, one time I was on a trip, and I was much younger. I played the piano uh, when I was a kid, took lessons forever, and uh, there was this, like, talent show where we were, and uh, and I rocked Piano Man. I played it exactly like Billy Joel plays Piano Man, and for whatever reason, the crowd just wasn't in it. They weren't feeling – they weren't interested in, in Piano Man. They weren't interested in music. I was nowhere near New York, so maybe – I don't know, maybe just a, a, not a Billy Joel crowd, which – why would I hang out with a non-Billy Joel crowd? And uh, I, I was probably like 13 at the time, and I got off the stage, and uh, I blew two balloons up with my nose, and then everyone started applauding me. I was like, wow, wow. okay, this is the crowd that I'm hanging out with here. Yeah, that was your we real feat. A, yeah, like that was – like really, that's the talent? I've been like busting my butt to learn piano and to nail this <laughs> Piano Man song, and that – that's not what was going to get them. No, not, no, not they, like they were two balloons, you know? they were looking very much for the uh, nostril balloon inflation act, and they you got it. And I guess that's that. And, uh, yeah, that brought I, them brought them to their feet. Do you have a favorite so Billy Joel song? Here. Before we move on. Oh well, listen, I'm I am we're, we're 28 days to go before this election, so I am totally right now talking to Guy Benson in the New York state of mind. There we go. But, but, That's, but, I mean, but you want to be governor of New York. How can you not answer New York State of Mind? That is the perfect answer, I have to say. Uh, you know, listen, you just have to throw me out. Imagine if I, of all the songs, <laughs> chose Allentown. I mean, I could Which is really a great song. I love Allentown. I love you know, Allentown. Been, but, and you know, that, you know that Allentown was originally going to be called Levittown? But Billy Joel, oh. uh, you know, on Long Island, it's this community that folks moved to uh, outside of New York City, a suburb, uh, after World War II. And you know, it, was, it's just, it is a great community. Uh, but he didn't like the way Levittown was floating when he was singing it, so he ended up changing it to Allentown. But he went from a, a, a great Long Island community to picking a town in Pennsylvania, which, you know, listen, it was uh, it's a little bit of heartbreak to this day. Obviously, I'm still talking about it. Yeah, and he sings about other places like Say Goodbye to Hollywood, although he's leaving Hollywood in that case. We could go on, it sounds like, about Billy Joel for a while. I'm glad that we were able to start on that note because it's much more positive and fun. I do have to ask you about something much more negative and less fun and really dark that happened uh, just outside your home over the weekend. I know you've been on Fox and Friends and elsewhere talking about this incident, but describe for anyone who is not familiar with what went down what exactly happened very close to your house? Yeah, it was actually right in front of my house. There was a drive-by gang shooting on Sunday afternoon. My daughters, uh, who are 16 years old, I have twin girls, and they're sitting at our kitchen table, a quiet, peaceful Sunday afternoon. 
and all of a sudden they hear gunshots around 2.20 p.m., and then they hear screaming, and what freaked them out the most was that they thought that the individuals who they heard screaming and they that, that who were just outside of our front door, our, my girls thought that they were being targeted, that these people were there to go after them, and you know they had already heard the gunshots, so they ran upstairs, locked themselves in the bathroom, Ariana immediately called 911. Michaela immediately called my wife and I. My wife and I had just left a Columbus Day parade in the Bronx, so we were not close to home, and they were frantic. I mean, hear Ariana screaming in the in the background. Uh, we they were, they stayed in the bathroom for a while because we were waiting for an all clear uh, from law enforcement. And uh, what ended up happening? I mean, there was a bullet that was found about 30 feet from where the girls were sitting. Uh, the, the two people who were shot were laying down about 10 feet from where they were sitting. One was underneath my front porch. The other one was in, uh, underneath a bush a couple feet away next to my front porch. And when I, when we returned home, I mean, there was crime scene tape uh, around my house. I'm being told to be careful where I'm walking because they're finding blood on, on the property. When I got in, uh, we pulled up our security camera footage. We have a lot of security cameras at the house. Uh, four of our cameras picked up the, uh, the three people, and uh, two were shot. There was a third person who didn't appear to be shot who was moving around the front yard, up and down the porch, back down in the front yard, backing up and down the porch. Uh, and then the local law enforcement, they, they jumped all over it. They've been working hard. Uh, as far as I know, uh, I, I don't have a name and identity for a shooter shooters. I don't know motive. Uh, so hopefully that's something that will get more information and be able to, to share. But my daughters acted smartly, swiftly. Uh, yesterday, we brought them with us to the Columbus Day Parade in Manhattan. We thought it would be good just to be with the family, out of the house. And uh, and it was interesting because the, the, uh, I'm answering questions for media, and for the first time that I can ever think of, uh, they asked questions directed at the girls, and they were they were good. They were solid. They were obviously genuine as it gets and sharing their experience, what they saw, what they felt. Uh, today they are taking the day off from school, one more day to decompress, and hopefully they'll be back to school tomorrow. But, uh, you know, the girls the girls were strong. That was, that's a lot to deal with, especially the traumatic impact of thinking that those people were there for them. Is a gang-related drive-by shooting something that's typical of your neighborhood? Uh, it's a first. I can – it's never happened near my home as far as I know, as far as I can think of. And this is a community that – I grew up in kindergarten through 12th grade. My uh, daughters are in 11th grade. They've uh, been in the school district since kindergarten. And uh, this is something that was absolutely nowhere near any of our radars as a possibility. When we left that day, thinking that uh, we were going to be returning home with crime scene tape in front of our own house. And I'll tell you, there's just a lot of stuff going down across this state. We see the stories outside, uh, inside of New York City. Uh, last Thursday, four knife attacks in 10 hours. Uh, we had 
the Green Goblin gang that uh, beat up on people on side of uh, on the New York City subway. The axe man who took an axe out of his backpack and was swinging it at, at tables and walls and customers instantly released on, on cashless bail. Uh, the woman in Howard Beach who got attacked by someone who had once killed his own grandparent, released on parole, violated the parole this past August. His parole officer was not able to keep him detained because of another law called Less is More signed by Hochul, the Maris dad from Long Island, shot and killed a couple weekends ago, visiting his kid for parent weekend. Or last Wednesday, a mother of three who was murdered wearing a bulletproof vest in front of her three kids by a husband who was was released the day prior uh, because of cashless bail after being charged with a slew of domestic violence offenses. But the judge couldn't keep him detained. Uh, So I'm listening. I, I... If we were to recap all of the events of the last two weeks, all of the crime that's taken place around the state, you'd really think that we are recapping the last year or two. But just the last couple weeks in Kathy Hochul's New York, a crime is out of control and the people who are in charge aren't doing anything about it. I have a clearer purpose today than I have had at any other point of this campaign, even though I was railing on a cashless bail uh, out of the gate when I got in this race, saying that there was more that we need to do to take back our streets. Now there's even more that needs to get done and even more urgency to make sure that we win this race and to save New York. What's your response when you hear some of your critics, and uh, amazingly some people have said this, that you're trying to seize on what happened outside your house or exploit this for political reasons? Uh, and your opponent, Kathy Hochul, the incumbent Democrat, the governor, she is, of course, immediately turning this into a guns debate. She doesn't want to talk about the crime and the bail policies that she won't touch. She wants to make it a guns issue. What's your response to to those two reactions? This is the craziest part of how that how this went down. There were a bunch of members of the media who came to my house after this all went down on Sunday, and they requested that I come out and I answer their questions. And I then I decided eventually, okay, I'll come out and I'll answer your questions. I'll I'll provide a statement, and then whatever you have, I'll try to answer. And I came out, and the first question was basically criticizing me for coming out to speak about what had happened. I'm like, are you kidding me? You you, you're asking me to come out and answer your questions, and now you're going to imply that there's something wrong with me coming out to answer your questions? Like, give me a break. As if they don't want me to talk about the fact that I am speaking to them in front of crime scene tape in front of my own house. And, I mean, everything about this this moment in time where you have from Kathy Hochul, who's sitting in the governor's seat today, the people who want to hold her water, who think that we have to be talking about absolutely anything other than crime. Do not talk about cashless bail. Don't talk about district attorneys refusing to enforce the law. Don't talk about the Less is More Act or the HALT Act, which has resulted in our correctional officers being assaulted. And there are other pro-criminal laws that are now in place because of these people. I'm, I, I, this is why I got into this race. New York leads to the entire nation in population loss, and one of the reasons, one of them, I could think of attacks on wallets too, but also attacks on safety. And I came from a law enforcement household. My parents were divorced and remarried. I spent my week in one law enforcement household. I spent my weekend inside of another law enforcement household. And my running mate, our state's next lieutenant governor, Allison Esposito, 
25 years in the NYPD. She was the commanding officer of the 70th Precinct, and she retired to be our lieutenant governor. We're all in in doing absolutely everything in our power to take back our streets, and I am apologizing for absolutely none of that. Your opponent has been very reluctant to debate you in any context. It looks like she finally agreed maybe to do one later this month. You want more than that, obviously. What's the status of the debates that she has been thus far ducking, and I guess maybe she now might deign to confront you or be confronted by you one time? We we should have multiple debates across the state. I've been saying this for a while. The debates should have started before the start of absentee mail-in voting, which began two and a half weeks ago. People are voting right now. People should know where we stand on issues before they vote, not after. Hochul is one of these people who, on different issues like cashless bail, will tell you essentially that you have to elect her in order to find out where maybe she'll stand on an issue in January. That's actually what she says with regards to cashless bail. Now, she's trying to get away with one one-hour table debate at the very end of October that is over a month after the start of mail-in voting. And it's going to be on a cable station where, where many New Yorkers aren't even going to be able to watch it on their own TV. And we're going to be doing it in the New York City media market area. And there'll be important questions I'm sure they'll get asked. But, but there are important questions to get asked about the rest of the state. The entire state is not just the New York City media market. I mean, I would go, I'd come back on your show tomorrow if Kathy Hochul wanted to come on your show tomorrow, and the two of us can answer your questions. It'll be unfiltered. It'll be unscripted. No one knows what the questions are to be asked other than you. And you can ask us about whatever's going on in New York and what our plans are to solve it. But I have a feeling that she's not going to be responding in the affirmative well, if no you chance. were to reach out and say, No, there's, hey, there's absolutely no chance. And part of the reason is because she believes that she's ahead comfortably and she's a Democrat in New York and it's blue enough that even in a tougher environment, she's just going to coast to victory. And frankly, I mean, is she wrong? She is wrong. She, she Listen, she loses if she debates. She loses more if she doesn't debate. And she's trying to get away as a consequence with this one single one-hour cable debate at the very end of October. The Trafalgar poll from last week says there's a 1.9% gap between the two of us. I, I see it. I feel it as I, I'm in Democratic areas and as I'm in Republican areas. There's a massive enthusiasm gap right now in favor of people who plan on voting for us versus people who plan on voting for her. People are voting for us. The people who are voting for her, like they're not enthusiastic about it. I don't come across a person who loves Kathy Hochul. I mean, there are loyal Democrats out there who have always voted Democrat their entire lives. They always vote, will vote Democrat. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what her stance is on anything. It doesn't matter what my stance uh, is on anything. However, I just came to this conversation with you. I was just in lower Manhattan. I was with a, a big group of registered Democrats. And we were getting a lot of support from this, from this group. I, I, we have had current Democratic elected officials endorse us, former Democratic elected officials endorse us, Democratic community leaders, and they care about rising crime. They care about cost. They care about freedom. They want to save the state. They want to have balance restored to the state capital. And it, can you imagine if I, was, if I was Charlie Crist 
And I stood on the steps of the state capitol down in Florida, and I had a bunch of elected Republicans, former uh, elected Republicans, and Republican leaders all endorsing me. That would not just be the number one issue across the state of Florida. That would be the number one issue across the entire country on the national Oh, yeah. Be like, look at all these Republicans against Ron DeSantis. But, you know, that type of thing happens with you and the media does its thing or or doesn't do its thing in this particular case. Uh, High stakes in your state, not just in your race, but some really key House races all around New York. Turnout's going to be a very big thing. We'll be watching it extremely closely, of course. Lee Zeldin, Republican congressman from New York, from Long Island, running statewide for governor in the Empire State. Congressman, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for making some time today. You got it. Thanks. Take care, Guy. We will step aside and be right back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Guy Benson Show. Some sad news to report. This coming from a family statement earlier, quote, the children of Dame Angela Lansbury are sad sad to announce that their mother died peacefully in her sleep at home in Los Angeles at 1.30 a.m. today, Tuesday, October 11th, 2022, just five days shy of her 97th birthday. Angela Lansbury, an actress, she's been famous for many decades, Murder, She Wrote, Quite a stage career. She won five Tony Awards over the course of her time as an actress. I think probably for me, in terms of sentimentality, her voicing of Mrs. Potts in Beauty and the Beast, the first movie I ever saw in the theaters, that's the one that stands out to me. Born in London, died in Los Angeles. Dame Angela Lansbury, Dead today at the age of 96. Rest in peace to her and prayers to her family. What a life. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Stay tuned. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show a new hour is here on the guy benson show our middle hour of three between three and six p.m eastern every weekday thank you for being here i'm guy benson GuyBensonShow.com is our website GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free on demand every day. You can also follow us on social at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Catch me tonight with Brett Bayer on the panel around 640 or so p.m. Eastern Time. That's on Fox News Channel. Hope you can tune in live or set your DVR. Fox News alert. The Dow closing just up a hair up 36 points to 29,239 at the close. Actually, the Dow was way up earlier in the day, then came down into the red, recovered just a little bit to end in the green. The S&P and the NASDAQ both down today as now some new projections and warnings from financial experts of the worst yet to come on job losses and potential recession. There are some warning signals now flashing brighter And so the market's reacting, I would imagine, at least in part, to that. With us now is Leslie Marshall, Democratic analyst and contributor here at Fox News, also a radio host. Leslie, good to talk to you. 
Good to talk to you, Guy. Thank you for having me. I want to start with something that is related to your state in California. And I talked a lot about California actually yesterday on the show about this high-speed rail boondoggle that they just keep pushing back and punting, you know, decade after decade, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars now uh, being poured into this thing. And part of my critique, and you I'm sure would agree maybe with some of it, disagree with other parts, is that California is almost like this petri dish of progressivism. And a lot of the results, I think, aren't terribly good and should not be exported elsewhere in the country. And lo and behold, today there's a report in The New York Times that the Biden administration is now releasing a long-anticipated rule making it more likely for millions of workers to be classified by law as employees, which could deal a blow to gig companies' business model. This reminds me of AB5 out in California a couple years ago where – People who work in the gig economy, independent contractors, independent journalists, musicians, people who drive with Lyft or Uber, they basically had their jobs as it exists, at least as it existed at the time, made illegal. There was a huge hue and cry over it and a massive amount of disruption, livelihoods getting uprooted or even ruined overnight. I thought this was a very bad call out in California. Now it looks like the Biden administration is going to try to do this by fiat nationwide. I just wonder what you make of this as a Californian. Well, interestingly enough, I am an independent contractor in uh, many of my jobs, if not all of my jobs. <laughs> so I, I, I do know a bit about this. But let's look at the reason that this came about. And this was abuse by corporations to individuals who either wanted to unionize or were in unions within uh, several um uh, areas of uh, not just unionized but non-unionized work, if you're looking at trucking, if you're looking at agriculture. And what they would do would be they would reclassify or misclassify uh, individuals. So instead of a person being an employee, which would allow you to get overtime and to have health care benefits, and in some cases with some industries and some corporations, pensions, uh, you know, owners of these corporations would reclassify these individuals so that they were no longer able to partake of those benefits. And that, that's really the history of where it started from. I would agree with you that there's some, there can be some casualties from this, but the intent was good, which was trying to keep uh, corporations uh, honest and to try and not have employees um, hurt by those corporations and yeah, but look, things like vacation time, sick time, personal days, benefits, health care, and that kind of thing. Intent only gets you so far in my book. You can be well-intentioned. I'm not sure everyone here was well-intentioned. I think the author of that bill in particular has uh, been a very difficult person to swallow in terms of some of her comments about it, just you know, fully in the pocket of labor unions. But I'm sure there were some people who supported it because of what you just said. But rather than taking a scalpel and tinkering around with the problem – which I'm not sure the solution would have been successful anyway, they took a sledgehammer to the whole thing. And I heard from people like folks who want to drive in their own car whenever they feel like it makes some side money or full-time money, driving Uber, driving Lyft, that became all of a sudden a situation where they were being classified by the government as victims and you know an exploited class when actually they were doing this voluntarily. They wanted to do it, and the government was making it illegal. I'll tell you, Leslie, I think you know this. I got married out in California a few years ago. We had two musicians, dueling piano players, come, and they provided the entertainment at our wedding. They were absolutely spectacular. They did an amazing job. 
one of them has been messaging me privately for years on this because his whole business model as a as a you know guitarist and piano player was being made illegal in his home state and he was absolutely petrified of how he was going to pay his bills he said you know i've carved out a niche for me it works very well for me i love what i do the government is trying to make it against the law for me to do what i do i'm not a victim this is what i want to be doing with my life and you know part of my message to him was you know you can't just tell someone to move and leave their entire family behind but you know when you live in california sometimes crazy stuff is going to happen to you when a government i think in an over overweening way gets involved what worries me here is seems like some of those lessons out of California have not been learned. And in fact, you have the Biden administration trying to come in and do this or something similar on a national level when I don't think it has been successful at all at the statewide level. That's that, that's like, you know, the craziness out there now coming for the rest of us, which I'm not on board with. Well, you do speak to something when you have something, uh, you know, as broadly sweeping in a state as large as California. When you look at AB5 passed back in 2019, uh, there was a lawsuit, a huge lawsuit, which I'm sure you're familiar with. uh, And uh, it actually, you know, the trucking industry won, and and they are, you know, they are not affected by uh, AB5. In addition, there are a number of workers that are exempt. Some people would say when you read the legislation and you read the exemptions, that can be a bit confusing. That exemption, I believe, would apply to your piano doing well, piano well they keep exempting friend. more and more people right because it's just destroying so many people's lives that they keep going back and trying to amend and exempt and i feel like you know maybe this just wasn't a great plan to begin with maybe we shouldn't be taking this as a model and putting it on the country especially without a Perhaps, vote in congress but, but this is to, to me this is the problem when you have any legislation whether it's ab5 whether it comes from california uh, whether it's on a state or a federal level it and, and and i hate to say when you bite off more than you can chew and and you just have too many moving parts and you haven't taken the time to break down each of those parts and i think uh, arguably that can be what you know happened with ab5 in, in california and continues to because you know there continue to be lawsuits and uh, people that come under uh, they say look i'm under the umbrella of this exemption, um, and, and certainly that could be problematic even more so uh, on a national level. Leslie, totally out of nowhere question, out of left field, and I apologize if you have nothing to say about this. Did you by any chance listen to the serial podcast about Adnan Syed and that murder in Maryland years ago? Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> okay, because— my, my husband put it on one time. We had this long drive, and he said, I'm listening to this thing. I think you'll like it. And I'm like, I'm not a huge podcast fan, even though the Leslie Marshall Show has a podcast. Right? And he put it on, and I was hooked. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, so it broke earlier today, and I'm just seeing this, that Baltimore prosecutors have now dropped charges against Syed. He spent 23 years in prison. He was sort of the star character in that podcast. He got— a judge to side with him based on new evidence. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And then earlier today, Baltimore prosecutors have dropped those charges. So for those people who followed that case, that is a huge earthquake. I know it's just one example of, you know, one tiny sliver of the criminal justice system. But wow. I mean, if you if you listen to that show as you did, and I also encourage podcasting, by the way, that is a really amazing development. And I can't imagine it would have ever come about if not for that NPR podcast existing. 
Well, you know what? I want to say a, a few quick things, if you don't mind. My husband is Muslim. I think you know that. My son yep. was born in Pakistan. We adopted him from there. So the fact that uh, uh, Adnan Syed was a Pakistani Muslim, that's what got my husband interested into it, and then me. Um, and I would say I would agree with you with the NPR um, you know, podcast serial, but in addition uh, with his attorney, a woman – uh, a Muslim woman from within his community that would not give up. She was relentless. But not only is she relentless, we are seeing also, as you know, Guy, the reason the reason the prosecutors said they dropped all charges against him is because new DNA evidence confirms it's not him or the DNA did not belong and does not belong to Adnan Syed. Yeah, and, and my thing, and I said this when we talked about it a couple of weeks ago with the latest development in the case, I still suspect he might know more than he said and had something to do with it. But my suspicion or circumstantial evidence and, and certain things not adding up, that is not tantamount to beyond a reasonable doubt to jail someone for life for murder. Uh, you know, And so I didn't think the state met that burden. And apparently now, finally, uh, the prosecutors agree those charges dropped. He spent two decades plus behind bars. Leslie Marshall, I just had to get that in with you, and I'm glad that you were familiar with the situation. Democratic analyst, Fox News contributor Leslie, thank you. Thank you. We will step aside. We'll come right back. Let's get into more politics, hardcore politics straight ahead. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thank you very much for listening. I've mentioned this a few times this week and will continue to promote it. Tomorrow morning, I'm flying down to the Peach State. We'll be broadcasting from Georgia from our great affiliate Extra in Atlanta. Catch a little Braves postseason baseball. At the end of the week, I'll be going to Athens with some friends and seeing some college football. But the number one game in town is politics. Huge governor race, huge Senate race yet again in Georgia which finds itself at the crossroads of American politics in an extremely prominent way. They're kind of getting used to it, although I'm sure a lot of our listeners down there are sick and tired of seeing all these ads. Last time I was down there in 2021 ahead of an election, it felt like every commercial break to anything I was watching was nothing but political ads, one after another after another, many of them negative And two of the ads that are running right now in Georgia, sort of setting the table for our discussion about those races these next couple of days, I want to play them for you, starting with Stacey Abrams, this totally shameless ad that she is running right now in Georgia, where she's trying to blame Republican Governor Brian Kemp for the consequences, the outcomes of her own dishonest agitation on the voting reform law and quote unquote, Jim Crow 2.0. She's saying that's Brian Kemp's fault. Her lies and the results of her lies are Brian Kemp's fault. Listen to cut 12. Brian Kemp's far right politics have really cost us. We lost the all-star game over his restrictive voting laws and it cost Georgia businesses $100 million. Music Midtown pulled the plug over his dangerous gun laws and cost us another $50 million. Under Kemp, six hospitals closed, including a major medical center. Now, business leaders say his abortion ban is hurting Georgia companies. Stacey Abrams will keep jobs and opportunity here in Georgia so we can all thrive. Oh, and the music gets so happy at the end at the mention of Stacey Abrams. Because Brian Kemp, 
his far-right politics have cost us. The All-Star Game, Major League Baseball pulling out shamefully last year, depriving Atlanta and those businesses of all that money and income, that was directly caused by the lies of Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock and the President of the United States, Joe Biden, who endorsed that boycott. The Democrats did that by lying about what was in the bill, calling it voter suppression, calling it Jim Crow, which clearly it is not because voter participation increased dramatically in the primaries across the board, Republicans, Democrats, black, white, everyone. It was a disgusting lie. Invoking a horrible period in our country's history to fearmonger baselessly and falsely, I would say willingly so, willfully certainly. Stacey Abrams agitated for these boycotts. She got them. And now she wants Brian Kemp blamed. And she's hoping voters won't understand the difference. I mean, good luck. Talking about, you know, the danger in gun policies. Seems like a lot of the crime isn't so much about gun policies as law enforcement policies and lawlessness in certain areas, particularly Atlanta. Not a hotbed of Republican leadership in that city. So to me, that's pretty desperate. Definitely shameless, but shameless is Stacey Abrams' middle name. Right? She got her rear end handed to her in court the other day, this multi-pronged lawsuit about Georgia's election system, and the Obama-appointed judge rejected every single argument from her and her group. Every argument that they presented, he rejected, and she then raced out to social media to declare it a hard-fought victory. Shameless. And this ad very much falls into that category. Now, the underlying proposition behind the ad is that Georgia is suffering because of the right-wingery of Brian Kemp, and it's really costing the state. In reality, the state is thriving. People in Georgia understand that. In fact, later on, I want to tell you about some of the approval ratings that we're seeing across the country. And if Georgia is failing, it seems like the people of Georgia aren't noticing when it comes to Brian Kemp's approval rating. What Kemp is doing in his ad that he's got out right now, they, they have multiple ads, obviously, but one that I saw that I thought was good, it's brand new, is his campaign is making the point that Georgia is excelling and doing so well precisely because the voters of Georgia rejected Stacey Abrams four years ago. And if they had adopted the policies Stacey Abrams wants and has advocated for, they would be in much worse position than they are under Kemp's leadership, cut 11. Why is Georgia outperforming the rest of the nation? Because we said no to everything Stacey Abrams wanted to do. She demanded more COVID lockdowns. She wanted schools and businesses closed, like in California. Abrams wanted to eliminate cash bail, pushing the same scheme that's fueling crime in New York. And Abrams wanted job-killing higher taxes over and over and over again. Georgia's doing better because we didn't do any of the things Stacey Abrams wanted. That's exactly right. If Stacey Abrams had won 55,000 more votes or so, she didn't. But if she had, the election wasn't stolen from her, as she also has claimed. But if things had been just a little bit different in 2018, I think the state of Georgia would look a lot closer to New York, New Jersey, Illinois, California, certainly on COVID and economic indicators. By a narrow margin, Georgians said no to that four years ago. And the state and the people and the businesses and the families and especially the children of Georgia are much better off. 
because Brian Kemp did the opposite of the Stacey Abrams agenda. Now there's another choice. Do you want the Stacey Abrams agenda for the next four years, or do you want to keep going with the prosperity and common sense of Brian Kemp? That's what that ad is about. So he's talking about her vision and her policies, and she's trying to pretend that her boycotts are Brian Kemp's fault. To me, the choice is not even close down in Georgia. And depending on what poll you look at, neither is the race. We'll be delving into that plus the Senate race in depth over the next few days as we broadcast from our affiliate Extra down in Atlanta. I'm looking forward to that. Quick break. We'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. We will turn our attention next to a very important Senate race also in the South. Stay tuned for that. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show, Tuesday edition on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our podcast is always free. It's always on demand every day when the show is over, just past 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Joining us again is Ted Budd, congressman from North Carolina. He's the GOP nominee for U.S. Senate in that key race. Congressman, welcome back. Great to be back with you. I saw that you and your opponent had a big debate a few days ago. I saw a few of the clips seemed like she was on the defensive a fair amount of the time, although she was getting her jabs in at you. You went back and forth. Give us your assessment of how the debate went, what you thought the key themes were, and what the takeaways are for voters who might have watched. Well, the main theme is is that she is a rubber stamp for Joe Biden's policies and the things that hurt us when it comes to inflation or crime or education and parents wanting to say in their kids' education, she's wrong on all these issues. So the issues were on our side. She's a rubber stamp for Joe Biden, um, and and she fell apart. I don't know, overprepared, underprepared, but look, uh, she's a formidable candidate. She won. uh, she, She was a state Supreme Court justice. She lost that race in 2020, but only by 400 votes. Uh, But it just seemed to be a a real disconnect on the issues. Uh, She's out of touch when it comes to inflation. Uh, She's out of touch when it comes to crime. She's an extremist when it comes to abortion, believing in abortion at any time uh, for any reason, all the way up until the moment of birth at taxpayer expense. She refused to call the border uh, situation a crisis. So, guys, she's just out of touch with uh, where we really are here in North Carolina and the rest of the country. Yeah, I saw on her Twitter feed she was very much embracing the abortion extremism, saying, yep, that's exactly right. No restrictions, no limitations whatsoever. I, I guess it's very candid to align yourself firmly with a position that generally attracts about 11 to 19 percent of the public and probably lower in North Carolina on an issue like that. But I guess to get all those big national Democratic dollars from New York and California from the donor class, that's what you need to do from the grassroots activist class uh, over on the left. I suppose that's her calculation that she needs to do that. And then the other moment that you mentioned was one of the clips that I watched on the border. What was it with her refusal to just acknowledge that it's a crisis. Most people can at least use that word. I know the administration hesitates to use it, but looking at the numbers alone, there's no doubt that that's the case. She could say, yes, it is a crisis. I'm not responsible for it. I'm not in Congress. We need to fix it. But she wouldn't even acknowledge 
what the reality is using the accurate word. That was an interesting choice on her part. Yeah, she she really uh, just dropped the ball on that one. She wouldn't even do something simple like say that it's a crisis, given three opportunities to do so. Tim Boyum is very fair. I mean, he does a, a good job on both sides of the aisle, the moderator there with Spectrum News. But uh, he uh, just, to, uh, you know, he kept asking her, and she wouldn't acknowledge it. And we realized that one of the key things that you can tell is that the North Carolina, uh, excuse me, the National Border Patrol Council guy, they endorsed me. And then there's three law enforcement groups, which at, at one point had endorsed her when she was on the bench in North Carolina as a judge. The North Carolina Fraternal Order of Police once endorsed her. Now they've endorsed me. Uh, the um, Fraternal Order of Police, uh, I mean, the lists just go on and on. The North Carolina Troopers Association, uh, they have all endorsed her at one point, and now they know her, and they know how anti-law enforcement she is, uh, whether it's here locally or whether it's at the border. And she's very out of touch with North Carolina, and she's right down Joe Biden's alley in a complete rubber stamp for him. And I think that uh, Friday night debate just proved that. Yeah. Sherry Beasley is the Democrat in this race, and she's on the defensive over crime, as are many Democrats. And this is actually a theme that we've been talking about here on the show, Congressman, and I've been asked about recently a lot on television. We're seeing the Democrats trying to punch back on the issue of crime running these ads to try to inoculate themselves a little bit against the overall public perception, I would say an accurate one, that Democrats have been the soft-on-crime, criminal-indulgent party, especially in these last few years. And the thing is, some of the people who specifically said and did things themselves are now sprinting away from that record, trying to pretend like it never happened, like they never said these things, that it's all just a smear job by Republicans – And the problem is the perception, at least the problem from their perspective, is the perception exists for a reason. And I know in the case of your opponent, Sherry Beasley, that that is absolutely the case, sort of the things that she went along with and said and defended or minimized in 2020, for example, and her desperation to try to make it seem two years later like that was all just a, a, a false memory. It seems pretty transparent that she's running away from her own words or at least trying to. Well, she really is. But look, there's law enforcement groups that I mentioned, uh, Fraternal Order of Police, Police Benevolent Association, North Carolina Troopers Association, National Border Patrol Council. Take their word for it. Obviously, I'm going to be very supportive of my efforts in the next 28 days in my campaign, but don't take my word for it. If if you're still undecided, if you're worrying, if you're going to turn out and vote – Take their word for it, because they're the the men and women who are out there in uniform every day, whether it's on our border or here in our counties and our cities in North Carolina and around the country, putting their lives on the line for not very much pay. Take their word for it. And they're the ones that know her. And now they have endorsed me. Any word from the president or the vice president? Have they been seen at all in the Tar Heel state? Feel like maybe Sherry Beasley, who would absolutely vote along with the Biden agenda every step of the way. You just look at her public positions, they're indistinguishable from the Biden-Schumer agenda. Is she eager to get Joe and Kamala down there for her? It's another issue that came up multiple times, and uh, whether she would campaign with Joe Biden. Um, and, and again, they've been so awkward. Uh, and yeah, and she just seems to find her calendar very, very full on those days for some reason. And it sure seemed that uh, the same way during the debate that she would somehow find her calendar very full 
whenever the president or vice president, um, uh, Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, would come to North Carolina. He's like, so oh, no, sorry. You know, Mr. President, I, I wish I could. I just I have a dentist appointment that day. Uh, you know, I don't need one, uh, but I've scheduled one anyway because I apparently like a voluntary, unnecessary root canal seems preferable to some of these Democratic candidates and being seen in public with the president of the United States. Yeah, they, 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 it just really was a bad look for them. Look, uh, the former president, they asked me about the, you know, the former president, President Trump. I was like, look, he won North Carolina twice. He endorsed me because I'm an America first candidate. Uh, the things that I supported led to 1.4 percent inflation, the lowest unemployment in history and you know, recorded history when it comes to uh, wages, when it comes to unemployment, when it comes to inflation. Uh, it was phenomenal. And then you see things like uh, the lowest unemployment in uh, for African Americans, uh, for um, for Hispanics, for women. We were winning on so many different things. So I'm like, if he comes to North Carolina, I'm all in. But uh, she runs away from her current president. What's her answer on the inflation and economic issues? Because, I mean, you and I both know, and she knows that if she were in Congress right now, she would have voted for the so-called Inflation Reduction Act which is nothing of the sort. It's not seen as a reduction of inflation by the American people in poll after poll. That's what they decided to name it, their giant spending boondoggle. She would have been a yes on that. We're seeing what's happening on inflation, on the prices of almost everything, uh, a dour economic outlook for the most part, and some more warning signs today from some of the experts. What answers does she have on any of this? She has no answers other than trying to fill up the time. Look, North Carolina's lives, they are not better off than they were two years ago. She says, oh, yeah, groceries a little higher. But she doesn't get to the fact of it. That's too much money chasing too few goods. She doesn't know the fundamentals. Her ideology as a Democrat doesn't allow her to solve this issue. She's for more government spending, more regulation, uh, uh, keeping people uh, off the payrolls and and uh, on to more welfare because that's more government power, more control in people's lives. So she's in a she's in a bad place when it comes to actually answering the issues that makes people's lives better every day. And, and that's why I'm running, Guy. I'm running to make North Carolinians' lives better every single day. And everything that she does, everything that the Democrats are doing right now, make our lives harder here in North Carolina. So on that issue, she had no answer, and it just proved how out of touch she is with North Carolina. Ted Budd is my guest, Republican congressman from North Carolina. He wants to be U.S. senator. Big election coming up in November. Last time we spoke, Congressman, I made it clear to the audience, and you know this better than anyone, there is no chance in my mind, zero chance that Republicans win back the Senate if they cannot hold your seat or the seat that you're seeking right now. It is the seat being vacated by Senator Burr. It's a Republican-held seat. If the Democrats can pick that one off, there's basically no path for the Republicans to gain the upper hand in the upper chamber. And given all the stakes, that makes your race extremely important. I put Ohio in a similar category here. The good news is, based on polling, you have been slightly ahead now for weeks. I mean, I I don't remember the last poll that I've seen where you're not a bit ahead. The bad news or the potentially bad news is it's not a comfortable margin. It's one point. It's Three points here or there. Striking distance, certainly for her. Tons of undecided voters, both of you sort of in the low to mid 40s in some of the polling. And I did see that Chuck Schumer and the Democrats just infused or announced at least an infusion of millions of dollars into North Carolina to help your opponent, Sherry Beasley, 
pick off that seat. What is your assessment of where the race stands right now? Why are the Democrats pumping even more money into it? And how confident are you that on November 9th, when everyone wakes up, you'll have a senator-elect Bud and not a senator-elect Beasley? If we do the work, Guy, and we stay disciplined, we talk about inflation and crime and education and our plan to solve these issues, uh, then we can win. If we have the support from individuals out there, people around North Carolina, uh, people who've gone on my website, tedbud.com, have been very generous, and I just can't thank them enough. If there are folks out there that want to contribute more, they want to uh, contribute for the first time to help us win, because, again, it is within the margin of error. That's why Planned Parenthood is dumping in more money. It's why Chuck Schumer is dumping in more money. And they always outraise us. We just need enough to tell our message because our message wins and our message and the things that we do, Guy, makes life better here in North Carolina and for the rest of our country. So I hope they go to tedbud.com, look up our issues, see where we stand, and that folks decide to support me and some of these other tough margin of error races around the country. Last question. I saw one commentator. I don't remember who it was, but there was a piece that had described your race between yourself and Sherry Beasley as perhaps the most boring, important race in the country. I think that was meant as a compliment. Like, it's not sort of a freak show with a bunch of crazy stuff and colorful characters and uh, very vitriolic attacks back and forth. It kind of feels like a normal, kind of reasonable, sensible race. I'm sure it doesn't feel boring at all to you because you're in it every day. But have you, and maybe your opponent as well, have you sought to keep this thing civil and somewhat normal, quote-unquote, in a way that maybe would be refreshing these days? Has that been an intentional choice? You know, it's more – it's my style as a North Carolinian. Uh, President Trump, he didn't endorse me because of any kind of style. He endorsed me because I'm an America First candidate. And I just know – I mean, my grandfather, he was born in 1890, and he said, just do what you say you're going to do. That's a family motto. So we're just – we are nose to the grindstone each and every day. We work hard. We stay humble. We stay focused. That's the kind of race I'm running. I can't speak for Miss Beasley, who's getting propped up by Schumer in California and New York. So that's her kind of – that's her style, but we're going to work. We're going to ask North Carolinians for their vote and their prayers and their support on November 8th. Ted Budd is a Republican congressman from North Carolina. He would love to become a senator on November 8th. Huge election there, a must win for the GOP. He's slightly ahead, but too close for comfort still, as he was just saying. TedBudd.com is his website if you're interested. Congressman, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you, Guy. Great to be with you. And the Guy Benson Show resumes after this short break. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. Time now for a Democracy 2022 update from our team here at Fox News. The latest power ranking put out earlier today. Let's focus on the House because their Senate rankings show basically what we already know, which is a very, very tight pitched battle for the upper chamber. Republicans with the upper hand in 49 seats, 47 seats for the Democrats, and then just those remaining toss-ups. And you can probably name the states already by heart. We'll ask Byron York maybe about the Senate picture in the next hour when he joins us in studio. He's been reporting on those races. He's been following American politics for decades. So I wonder what Byron thinks. Could Republicans win back the Senate as well as the House? And if so, how? We'll get that 
perspective roadmap from Byron York in the next hour. But on the House side of things, the lower chamber in Congress, according to the latest power rankings and projections from Fox News, quote, that forecast expects the GOP to win 231 seats while Democrats will take the remaining 204. So if my memory serves, when you've got sort of the universe of safe Democratic versus safe Republican seats and then leaning in both directions, then there's the toss-up category right in the middle. This basically assumes that Republicans would win roughly half of the toss-ups. If they win just around half, maybe slightly more, then they'd be at 231 to the Democrats, 204. If they do better than that, obviously the majority could look bigger. I'll remind you, last cycle in 2020, the Republicans were expected to fall further in the House with the Democrats bolstering and padding their majority, adding seats. That did not happen. In fact, the Republicans won double-digit seats, much to the surprise of a lot of the experts. And part of the way that they did that, in addition to polling being wrong, was they swept every single toss-up race in the Cook political report category. In that middle column, toss-ups, Republicans won every single one of them. I'm not predicting that will happen again. I'm not saying it's going to happen on November the 8th in 2022 again, but it at least suggests that it's plausible, if not somewhat probable, that Republicans could do better than winning just about half of the toss-ups, in which case that majority could be a bit more robust. But that's what Fox is projecting right now based on this latest power ranking. I wanted to bring that to you. And again, we'll talk Senate coming up in a little bit with Byron York. On the governor's side of things, I did want to flag this. Morning Consult has polled all of the governors in the country, has checked all of their popularity in their states in a massive poll across the entire country. And the results are Fairly interesting. There are certain governors that we talk about a lot here on the show for various reasons. One of them is Greg Abbott in Texas, who's got a 51 percent approval rating in this poll, 41 percent disapproved. So he's plus 10 in Texas, according to Morning Consult. Ron DeSantis down in Florida. He's at 53, 41 plus 12. Brian Kemp in Georgia, where we'll be broadcasting from and visiting the rest of the week. He's at 53, 40. So plus 13 on job approval. And then Glenn Youngkin, who is the newly elected Republican governor of Virginia, who won last year in a very tight race that the Democrats for a long time were expected to win. He is at 55 percent approved, 33 percent disapproved. He is doing very well. More than 20 points above water in this poll. Meanwhile, the least popular governor in the country, Kate Brown, a very left wing Democrat out in Oregon, She is 16 points underwater. She is not seeking reelection, but there's a very close race in Oregon, a three-way race where the Republican is running a great campaign and has a chance, I think a legitimate shot to win one of those races that we'll be watching late into the night, likely on November the 8th. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is straight ahead. As I mentioned, Byron York is here face-to-face when we return.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink at thelongdrink.com. I'm going down to Georgia. We'll be broadcasting from our great affiliate in Atlanta Extra the next three days. Georgia as a state is just awash in long drink. I say that is a very good thing. You should find out where it's sold near you if you haven't tried it already. Thelongdrink.com, 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. Our website is available to everyone, people of all ages, 21 plus. 21 under, it's fine. GuyBensonShow.com, lots of content and information there. Ways to listen live, ways to get the podcast, which is free on demand every day when the show is over just after 6 p.m. Eastern or so. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. Lots of goodies there as well. And tune in tonight. In fact, in the next hour, about an hour and a half plus from right now, I'll be on the panel with Brett Bayer on Special Report on Fox News Channel. With me now here in studio is Byron York, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. Byron, great to see you as always. Good to be here. So last night, the vice president, Kamala Harris, was on Late Night with Seth Meyers on NBC. I did see a story, I think, in the New York Times about how this show might be going away or being put on a... Along with the rest of late-night television, except for Greg Gutfeld, apparently. Yeah, I guess, like, late-night talk shows might be... They're dying. You know, extinct yeah. or going to streaming platforms, and I guess Seth Meyers' show was, one, being discussed of perhaps getting moved off of NBC. Unclear. But for now, it's still on the air. Yep. It's the show after The Tonight Show, so I guess 1235 Eastern, if I recall correctly. It has been forever since I watched this show. <laughs> but Vice President Kamala Harris was a guest on it. She had just come back. In fact, we opened our show yesterday talking about her trip down to Texas, where she studiously avoided the border. She didn't go there, of course. She didn't even talk about it Mm -hmm. at either of the events that she appeared at, even though she is at least technically the border czar for this administration. And so last night, I would say rather helpfully, Seth Meyers asked her about the issue, of course, in a context to let her dump on Republicans because he's a part-time comedian and full-time Democratic operative. But the talking point was around this issue that we've talked about, which is the Republican governors sending migrants to blue jurisdictions, busing or flying them to sanctuary locations. And because this stunt has been successful, Seth Meyers asked the vice president about it. I'm sure she would prefer not to talk at all about it, but she was kind of forced to. Here's part of what she said in response, cut 13. I just think it's an absolute dereliction of duty. If you see a problem... And if we agree that that we need to address it, then if you're a leader, participate in a solution, right? I mean, the lack of self-awareness is extraordinary. She said some more things, but let's just start with that one. Quote, if you're a leader, participate in a solution. And if you don't, it's a dereliction of duty. She is saying that in the context of the border crisis about not herself or her administration. No, you have to remember, when we're talking about this massive new influx of illegal border crossers that began in January of 2021, the Biden administration, which includes the vice president, created this problem. 
I mean, they sent the message through the campaign and through the transition. Uh, they were going to do a moratorium, remember, on all de- deportations. Uh, they were talking about far, far more, quote, humane uh, uh, policies than Donald Trump. They were going to end the Remain in Mexico uh, program, which was the most important way of dealing with asylum seekers for the United States. They were going to end all that. Uh, and it was clear the message was, and people in, in Central America, in the Northern Triangle, in South America, they follow the news. They know what's going on. And the message they got was, if you can cross the border into the United States, you've got a good chance of being allowed to stay. And so they have. Yeah. And many of them are here. Yep. Millions of them, in fact, now. Millions is freshly are here. Correct. And yet you have the woman who's been put in charge of this portfolio item in the Biden administration calling Greg Abbott derelict in his duty. Well, you know, you know, Ron DeSantis isn't a leader because he's not participating in a solution. What has she done to lead or to participate in solutions? Well, this is very interesting. Remember, there was this time when uh, there were news reports that she had been appointed border czar by the president. And she said, no, 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 I'm not going to be the border czar, meaning like the enforcement along the border. No, no, no. I'm going to be the root causes czar. Mm. I'm going to go down to uh, Nicaragua, Guatemala, El Salvador, and um, I am going to work on the root causes, which is basically give money uh, to these governments and hope that that will mean fewer people will leave those countries crossing through Mexico into the United States. How's that but gone? Not, not at all. I mean, <laughs> you've, well, to what, 2.1 million fiscal year 2022? 2.1 million. It hadn't gone very well at all. But what was interesting is, you know, she was saying, well, you know, take the job. Uh, do, do do your part. Well, when she was told or asked to be border czar, she, she died to that one. She talked entirely about root causes. And yet – they're not fixing that because it's also unfixable. The idea that we can Correct. ameliorate or mitigate the border crisis in any serious way by pumping some money into a handful of countries when you've got people arriving from 150 different countries in the last couple of years, it's just totally fanciful. And mm-hmm. it just blows my mind for her to be on a high horse about duty and solutions and leadership when the administration has caused this crisis directly by their policies. They have done absolutely nothing to stem the tide. And the people who are forced to deal with it every single day down at the border, they're the ones that they're attacking. And we shouldn't leave out uh, Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, who's, who's, who's declared a crisis, an emergency, wants uh, federal help there, and said famously not too long ago that, uh, you know, New York City didn't ask for this. Yeah, we didn't ask for this. We didn't ask for we this. We didn't choose this. And you think... Did Texas ask for this? Did Arizona, New Mexico, California, all the border states, they didn't ask for this. And last I checked, New York City in some ways kind of did ask for it because they've declared themselves a sanctuary jurisdiction. Yes. You know, and, and the interesting the, uh, thing about sanctuary is when they, when they speak about sanctuary cities, they basically mean we, the city, will not cooperate with the enforcement of U.S. immigration law. If there's, if there's someone in uh, who's present in the United States illegally, but who is in our city, and federal authorities want to deport them, we are not going to cooperate in any way at all. So that is the message that they sent. Mm-hmm. It's a, they like to use the word welcoming. It was a welcoming message. There's also the sanctuary state of California. We mentioned yesterday yeah. there was a mass stabbing in Las Vegas. Yeah. The suspect in that case is an illegal immigrant who is living in California, 
picked up a criminal record in California, but the feds had no record of him because of the sanctuary policies that are so welcoming and so progressive and so kind-hearted, right? And this is how they at least view themselves, how they yeah. talk about their positions. When things play out in the real world differently, they sort of run away and just lash out at anyone who notices. You know, I have to think um, a critical moment in all this. Remember uh, several years ago there was an Arizona governor named Jan Brewer, and she decided uh, that if the federal government was not going to enforce uh, the immigration laws at the border, that she would, and that uh, Arizona would start um, uh, checking people who were stopped in traffic stops to see if they were uh, in the country legally. And there was a big uproar about this. And the Obama administration sued the state of Arizona and ended up winning. And the, the, the argument of President Obama was, I, the president of the United States, am head of the executive branch. I have sole authority to enforce our immigration laws. And by the way, I have the sole authority not to enforce our immigration laws. And this is, this is an issue. Uh, everybody says, well, Congress needs to pass this. Congress needs to pass that. But the Democratic Party has decided not to enforce some of our key immigration laws. And the Obama administration did it, and now the Biden administration. Whenever anyone points this out or raises the specter of what the outcome is, what the consequences are, yeah. then we get the whole sort of sound and fury about dereliction of duty and solutions and all of that. Yeah. And we had also this extremely, I would say, inaccurate, I'll, I'll be kind, description of the solutions that I guess the vice president had in mind, again, blaming others for not getting things done. Cut 14, listen. When we first came in office, the first bill that we proposed was for a pathway for citizenship, was to fix a broken immigration system, which was broken under the previous administration. Participate in the solution, because we are offering solutions. But instead, this gamesmanship with real human beings who trust us. I mean, just so many ways to unpack that in her little rant there to Seth Meyers last night. Beyond tendentious, she's saying the first thing we proposed was a pathway to citizenship as if that would be a solution to the border crisis right. as opposed to an incentive for even more. A, a bigger magnet. A bigger magnet. She, that was the solution yeah. that some people are rejecting, I guess. She says the system was broken under the previous administration, and it's just a refusal to embrace the great solutions that they put on the table that really is the problem here, Well, Byron. this is, uh, if you're a Democrat, this is the easiest soundbite in the world. She was referring to what's often referred to as comprehensive immigration reform, uh, which the Congress tried to pass in 2006 and seven, tried to pass in 2013, and hasn't done it. So there, there are laws on the books, the... Um, what's called the IMA, the Immigration and Naturalization Act, I think. Or, um, and it's been there since the 50s. It's been amended many, many times. But it's the law, and Congress has decided not to change it. And when you have this enormous problem, uh, you can't say, well, we've, we've, we've proposed changing the law. Isn't that enough? Well, no, they're not enforcing the laws that we actually have. And also, last point on immigration and this overall discussion— as someone who might have been somewhat open to a form of quote-unquote comprehensive reform mm -hmm. at some point, we are so far past that in my mind. It is such an acute scandal, really. It goes beyond a crisis. It's a scandal. It's completely out of control. To talk about rewards or incentives or anything like that 
is completely beside the point in my mind. At this point, you have to start with enforcement, right. which right. is where they never want to start. And, right. of course, she doesn't mention it here. She mentions a pathway to citizenship as her number one talking point on this, which I think is, again, revealing coming from the supposed border czar, although she doesn't want to have that term, that title. She was given that title, though, by the president. The so. root causes czar. <laughs> exactly. Root causes czar. Byron, before I let you go, we talk here every day about the broad electoral map, the landscape of the midterm elections. Let's talk about the Senate because we have a lot of smart people on here all the time. We had a Senate candidate, a nominee in the last hour, and Ted Budd from North Carolina here on the show. As you, given all of your years of covering American politics, as you look at this particular year and this cycle on the Senate side specifically, how is it shaping up in your mind less than a month out? Well, um, first of all, we're talking about the Senate because it really looks like Republicans are going to win the House. So that's, that's I think, close to a done deal. Uh, as far as the Senate is concerned, each, each party is defending uh, seats that they already have, or maybe they're now open, but they're uh, their their members are in it now. So the question is, if everybody defends their seats successfully, we get a 50-50 Senate next time in the same um, same tune again. My guess is that you're going to see uh, almost all candidates be successful in defending their party seats, with the exception of Nevada. So what I'm suggesting is Republicans are defending a seat in Pennsylvania. That's a very, very hot race. Um, I do think that uh, Mehmet Oz, the Republican, is going to pull that one out. You do? Yeah, I think it's moving. Uh, I think it's the the race is moving toward him. Well, it's definitely um, moved toward he is him. Doing, he is doing traditional campaigning. He's, see, he's, he's going out. He's, he's seeing a lot of people. He's traveling a lot of places, pressing the flesh. Uh, this is a campaign that I think will ultimately make it. Even so, though they're down four-ish 3. points. 3.7 points right now. In the Although, you know, have you been talking about this new Real Clear Politics things where they're trying to um, factor in the bias that polls have shown in 16, 18, and 20 uh, on the idea that perhaps they're still that way? Um, my guess is it's closer than that and that uh, Oz will actually win. On the other hand, perhaps my other slightly unpopular opinion here is that in Georgia, there's just an enormous reservoir, a reservoir of goodwill for uh, Herschel Walker, uh, which is draining fast, I think. Um, and I'm just not sure that by the time we get to Election Day that uh, a certain number of Georgia Republicans are going to decide to not vote in that race. They're not, not going to vote for Warnock, but they're just not going to vote. And I think there's a real good chance that uh, Democrats hold that seat in Georgia. So basically, in your theory, both parties are playing successful defense in all of their seats, with the only exception of Nevada, Correct. where you think Adam Laxalt will knock off Cortez Masto, which would so. be an R plus one gain. And if everything else is equal, it's a 51-49 Republican Senate? Correct. And that's your prediction? My prediction today. <laughs> Okay. My prediction today. Fair. Exactly. We'll have to check back in perhaps in a future. Well, and, and 5149 is a whole lot different than 5050. Of course it is, especially considering who's in the White House right now yeah. and, and how yeah. the politics of the Senate work. Well, I think that's a completely plausible theory. I might even oh, good. say good. I am I am leaning toward agreeing with you. I'm not necessarily as optimistic on Oz, although I think he can win. 
And I'm not necessarily as pessimistic on Walker, although I think he might lose. Mm -hmm. But all else being equal, if the Republicans win the Senate, I think it will be 51-49. On a really good night, you could imagine maybe 52, Mm -hmm. 53 if they really blow the doors off. Or in the other direction, it could be 50-50 or 49-51, also completely plausible. These races coming down to the wire, turnout being absolutely crucial. And while I agree with you on the House – No one should take anything for granted because showing up and voting is imperative. Byron York, we'll have you back for maybe one more prediction closer to November 8th. Byron York, chief political correspondent at The Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor here with us in studio. Byron, thank you. Good to be here. Thanks. And we'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Pleased to have you here every weekday. Also pleased to revisit a fun little segment we like to call Woke Tales. Woke Tales. And this is now becoming an annual tradition around Halloween, as we are a few weeks out, where I guess it's now politically incorrect to celebrate Halloween or to have Halloween events at schools because it's not inclusive enough of a holiday and people might get offended by costumes. I'm telling you, they just want to suck the joy out of life everywhere possible. And it's all about power and bullying people and bending them to their will, care about what we care about, do as we say, or else. And they just want to make people miserable. So they're trying to steal Halloween from kids in schools. And it's Due to supposed inclusivity issues, I see this one's in Pennsylvania, school district in Montgomery County, canceling Halloween parades at elementary schools. They say it's because of, quote, inclusivity concerns, but also safety. I guess crime is bad enough, this fake issue supposedly that Fox News made up, crime is bad enough that they believe that Halloween parades at a school are going to be too unsafe due to crime. Plus, people might get offended. So, you know what? Let's just do away with it. And I guarantee you will see more of these in the next couple of weeks and then more of them next year as well. And this is how they operate. The joyless woke scolds strike again. And that's Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Woo. The happy hour continues right after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Earlier in the program, back in our first hour, we welcomed Congressman Lee Zeldin, Republican of New York. He's running for governor there as he currently serves in Congress. There was a very scary situation, a shooting just outside his home over the weekend. He's been all over the news talking about it. We caught up with him on that issue, plus the state of his campaign. Here's part of that conversation. What's your response when you hear some of your critics, and amazingly some people have said this, that you're trying to seize on what happened outside your house or exploit this for political reasons? Uh, And your opponent, Kathy Hochul, the incumbent Democrat, the governor, she is, of course, immediately turning this into a guns debate. She doesn't want to talk about the crime and the bail policies that she won't touch. She wants to make it a guns issue. What's your response to, to those two reactions? This is the craziest part of how that how this went down. There were a bunch of members of the media who came to my house after this all went down on Sunday, and they requested that I come out and I answer their questions. And I me and then I decided eventually, okay, I'll come out and I'll answer your questions. I'll I'll provide a statement, and then whatever you have, I'll try to answer. And I came out 
And the first question was basically criticizing me for coming out to speak about what had happened. I'm like, are you kidding me? You, you, you're asking me to come out and answer your questions, and now you're going to imply that there's something wrong with me coming out to answer your questions? Like, give me a break. As if they don't want me to talk about the fact that I am speaking to them in front of crime scene tape in front of my own house. And, I mean, everything about this this moment in time where you have from Kathy Hochul, who's sitting in the governor's seat today, to people who want to hold her water, who think that we have to be talking about absolutely anything other than crime. Do not talk about Castle Spell. Don't talk about district attorneys refusing to enforce the law. Don't talk about the Less Is More Act or the HALT Act, which has resulted in our correctional officers being assaulted. And there are other pro-criminal laws that are now in place because of these people. I'm, I, I, this is why I got into this race. New York leads the entire nation in population loss, and one of the reasons, one of them, I could think of attacks on wallets too, but also attacks on safety. And I came from a law enforcement household. My parents were divorced and remarried. I spent my week in one law enforcement household. I spent my weekend inside of another law enforcement household. And my running mate, our state's next lieutenant governor, Allison Esposito, 25 years in the NYPD. She was the commanding officer of the 70th Precinct, and she retired to be our lieutenant governor. We're all in in doing absolutely everything in our power to take back our streets. And I am apologizing for absolutely none of that. Your opponent has been very reluctant to debate you in any context. It looks like she finally agreed maybe to do one later this month. You want more than that, obviously. What's the status of the debates that she has been thus far docking? And I guess maybe she now might deign to confront you or be confronted by you one time. We we should have multiple debates across the state. I've been saying this for a while. The debates should have started before the start of absentee mail-in voting. My full interview with Congressman Lee Zeldin, Republican gubernatorial nominee in New York, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. You can also catch our full podcast every day on demand totally free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch producer Christine got a bit of a slapdown from her mother, Judgey Joyce, on Christmas creep. We'll explain right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Tuesday on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast is free every day. Catch me tonight on Special Report on the panel. I'll be on set with Brett and the crew. That's around 640, 645 Eastern Time on Fox News Channel. Well, it's time now to discuss Christmas, because why not? It's October 11th. There is a subject, or at least a phenomenon, known as Christmas creep that I am often lamenting and bemoaning on this show much to the chagrin of producer Christine, who is very much a supporter of, a practitioner of Christmas creep, which is the idea of the Christmas season starting way too soon and the Christmas sort of season creeping deeper and deeper into the fall. And if you're new to the show, then you might not know that my favorite season is the fall. My favorite holiday is Thanksgiving. So I like to protect Thanksgiving from Christmas creep. 
No Christmas tree in the house until after Thanksgiving. No Christmas music in the house until usually December 1st. Christine, of course, starts with Christmas around July, typically. And so we sent around this article about Christmas creep in the group text. And Christine was saying, no, no, it's not what that is. It's just being prepared. It's called planning. And then she tried to do some of her Christmas creep planning involving her mother, and she got a real rebuke from Judgey Joyce. Christine, what happened? So my mom is coming up this Sunday. We do Sunday dinner a lot of times. So she's coming up, and I thought for a second, and I said, oh, you know what? Uh, It would be good for her to bring up all the boxes of Christmas decor that I have because we had to keep it there when we sold the house. So I wrote to her and I said, Mom, since you're coming up on Sunday, just do me a favor. Obviously, she can't bring up the tree, but bring the Christmas um, boxes. I want to get sort through everything, see what I need, what I don't need, what actually matches this apartment and what doesn't. And then that way on November 1st, I'm good to go. So she wasn't responding. And then I finally texted again. and said, did you see this? And then she, all she wrote was, Chris, dot, 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 grow up and get real, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> get real. I love that. I'm not exactly sure what it means, but I think me it's just a reality check. Like, it is October 11th. Don't be asking me to bring Christmas decorations to the house. I think that, that is a completely reasonable thing. And I do have to wonder, though, before you even respond to that, is this potentially a deflection where she's punting this issue because maybe the Christmas stuff actually isn't at her house. Maybe it went the way of the hot dog costume and it's gone, and she's just trying to delay you finding out about that. Huh. So then that means Bobby is in on it because Bobby was the one that got rid of the hot dog costume. So I'm going to have to do mm-hmm. some searching, some digging. It's like, oh, yeah, it's all at uh, it's all at Judgey Joyce's house. We'll get it when the time comes, you know, in due time, in due time, Christine. And now, obviously, it's not due time. It's way too early. But at some point, they'll just have to say, yeah, all the decor is actually gone, and we're starting over and much smaller and much simpler and much later. That's my theory. Well, I mean, the thing is, I don't even know if the decor that I have from Christmas last year is even going to go with this apartment. Like, I honestly think I need to get a brand new tree. I don't even know if the tree is going to work because the apartment's so much smaller. I'm thinking about doing one of those very, very skinny trees, but it rotates. Have you ever seen oh. those? Christine, like it on and get real. That's all I have to say. You don't like the spinning tree? Oh, my God. No. I think that's so classy. Yeah. Do you? Yes, because it shows I, up abs- all the ornaments. Absolutely not. So you know that I'm not even an artificial tree person to begin with. And mm. nothing screams artificial tree like a rotating plastic tree. I want a real tree that smells nice and drinks water and it's, I don't know, that's just how I am. I don't judge people who go the artificial route. It's not for me. Rotating, it's just, you're like flaunting the artificiality. Although Quiet Wyatt has donned his headphones and really wants to jump in here, which he rarely does. So go ahead. Well, I just, we first have to talk about the fact that why are we talking about Christmas in October? And also, Christine, please do not do that. Do not get a skinny Christmas tree that is fake. That is just so wrong. And rotating. And we're talking about it because it's the issue of Christmas creep. 
this. We're actually falling victim to it here. But in the context of talking about your mother setting you straight the way that she did. Wow, you guys are I'm in shock about how judgy you are about. I thought the rotating tree was going to make you guys think it was classy. Honestly, Hmm. there's just such a disconnect. There's just such a misunderstanding of what is classy and what is not in my mind. Now, we might have some fabulous listeners out there who swear by, live by the rotating skinny plastic Christmas tree. Just not me. It's just not for me. And it just it's literally too many moving parts, constantly moving. I don't like with the train lights on the tree. I like a white light. I don't want them flickering. I want them to be consistently on simple simplicity. You don't have the twinkle in the like we like you can. Okay, let me ask you something. Do you have a train under the tree? No. So let me just pick. Let me set you up a little picture here. Imagine a slowly rotating tree. Colored lights, a little twinkle in all of the lights, as Bing Crosby singing, and the train is going around the track underneath. I mean, chills. Get real, Christine. That's, I mean, it's just, I keep coming back to that. It's such an appropriate phrase. I do have an update, though, that actually applies to the whole Christmas creep discussion because we started this yesterday i was talking about the shocking information that i got about our christmas party from our caterer that we've used for years adam had spoken to not the woman that i have always dealt with but someone else and he was saying there's a new rule and minimum spend and it was going to be more than double it was actually between double and triple what we have spent in the past and this blew me away and i was like well we we literally can't do that we can't afford it that's crazy we might have to change caterers and change the whole plan. Well, in the interim, before I bring the latest update to you, Christine, I wanted to let you know I got some text messages yesterday from my parents who listened to the segment. They were offering to come and be the caterers because this was their way of trying to get themselves invited to the party, and they were going to come in and cater the whole thing. Um, They are not caterers. This is not necessarily in their wheelhouse. They can entertain nicely. This is just a very specific skill set. So they were doing basically what you did, which was to offer to sort of thrust themselves into this whole fray to, quote, unquote, help. But I was, in the meantime, brainstorming other solutions. I was wondering, what if we could get the headcount under a certain number? And that could bring the cost way down, potentially. And I was thinking in terms of triage, like, who would we maybe not invite back this time around, and there were just certain demographics and individuals that came to mind that, you know, maybe just, you know, wouldn't make the cut this time, you know, from certain, you know, mid-Atlantic, New York area states. It's so far to travel, you know, especially if you've got, you know, a husband and a kid at home and a dog at home as well. Just like a very vague, general demographic. If you've ever done violence to a pony, for example, just like a vague group of people that might be at the very top of the list to get axed. And that was part of my plan. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, obviously you're not talking about me, but just say for the purpose of entertainment, you are talking about me. This Mm. would probably interrupt Dan's plans because I was assuming that I'd be driving Dan Dan and his uh, lovely gal pal. So you would really be, um, it would be problematic for more than just me. I'm just saying. Well, I would probably just like back channel with Dan Dan and YY 
getting certain best friends down to the party without the knowledge of maybe another one. I would see it on so. I mean, that's the thing. You can't not invite people these days because of social media. What if like true, but you can mute certain people from seeing your social media. So you're gonna tell the whole party, please mute. Please mute. Well, you know, certain certain crucial key players, right? Certain targeted folks. This is all, of course, completely hypothetical. I'm not saying that this is what we're going to do. It's just something. Sometimes hard choices have to be made, right? And I think was that not Hillary Clinton's autobiography, "Hard Choices"? I mean, that is kind of what we might have to deal with here. And it's it wouldn't be personal, right? You could go and what? maybe f- run into run to a psychic. In Times Square, and they could be like, "Ooh, I sense a disturbance in the friendship," but it really wouldn't be that. It would just be, you know, a, a lack of Christmas cheer necessitated by Bidenflation. You know, it's Biden. If this were to happen, it's Biden's fault, Christine, not anyone else's. I can I can help you. I can most certainly go through the list with you. But like, I'm like the center of the party. I, you can't. And who else is going to make? Did you see those shrimp and cheese trees I sent yes, you? You sent me a shrimp tree that you wanted to bring. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate the enthusiasm. I'm just saying desperate times call for desperate measures. And, you know, with this with this massive Biden inflation happening, plus the new policy at the caterers is sort of like, you know, you have to start crossing names off the list. And we didn't officially start the prospect, but we definitely had at least one name, you know, uh, initially, tentatively crossed off at just, you know, between one and let's say 50, but probably closer to one name so far. But I will keep you posted on the developments there. Well, that was the plan at least, except you can breathe a sigh of relief, Christine, On the way to the studio today, before the show, I placed a phone call to the woman at the caterer that I've been working with now for years. Said, hey, my husband was talking to one of your colleagues, and it sounded like there might have been a miscommunication. What we had in mind was almost exactly the same deal that we've always had. Is that still in the realm of possibility? And she told me that, indeed, there was a miscommunication and were existing clients and the rules – that were outlined do not apply to us, and they would very much love to keep the tradition going for basically the exact same deal, same contract, and it should be in my inbox by tomorrow. So it looks like the crisis has been averted, and our blacklist of one or more people might, in fact, go away. So Christmas has been saved. Christmas Christmas has been saved by a woman named Elise. Now, can the um, Benson parents and Cookie still come? Well, I mean, so my my parents have typically not been invited to this particular gathering because they're going to drive down for Thanksgiving and then again for Christmas. So they'll be spending a lot of time at the house, and it's a very long drive, as you know, double your drive. So I think that they're probably not going to be coming down for this party right in between the two holidays where they're going to be at the house so much. In terms of Cookie, I, you know, We'll see. I'm I'm not making any promises, but my guess is, and truthfully, my gut instinct is, I do owe it to Bobby to have him at least invited. He gets a plus one. Given all the stuff that he finds out about (laughs) on this show every single day, basically, about his own marriage and his own household, I feel like he deserves an invite to the party, and he gets a plus one. Which could be Megan, by the way, because she definitely provides a lot of content here as well, but that's really... 
his call. That's that is a private matter for your private marriage that we never discuss here. Well, you're going to disappoint another person on the team because I didn't get a chance to tell him yet, but I was planning on sleeping over at YY's house. So if I'm not there, you are you are ruining the night of not just yourself and Adam and me, but Dan, Dan and YY. Well, Wyatt just got up and left the studio in a panic <laughs> at this prospect. So I, you know, you can always. Why don't you call him after the show and you I can sure talk will. it through. I'm, I'm sorry, Wyatt. I shouldn't have suggested that, but you guys can work it out together. But you know the date, Christine. I might have let it slip on our Stanford trip, so you can circle that, and maybe all the quote unquote best friends will be united for the party after all, with the crisis solved and Christmas saved. And with that, on October the 11th, we're out of time. I'm on special report tonight on the panel. Fox News Channel coming up in the next hour. See you there. Back here tomorrow, same time, same place, but from Atlanta, Georgia. It's the Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.